Well, I remember the first time I took a trip uh, to Kenya back in 2015 to visit my sister and brother-in-law who were living there for a few years. And I'd landed in Nairobi at around 10 p.m. And the plan was for me to spend the night there in Nairobi, and then a driver was going to come pick me up and drive me to Bomet, which was located about some six hours away. And I booked a cheap hotel to spend the night in, not the Hilton Garden Inn located right outside the airport that catered to all the Western tourists. I instead chose the Nairobi Airport Hotel, which had mixed reviews at best, but it was cheap. And there was supposed to be a driver waiting for me outside the airport who was then going to take me to that hotel. But when I stepped outside of the airport into just a sea of people, I realized this was not going to be as easy as I thought. There, I wondered if I had perhaps should have paid for the Hilton Garden Inn because they had a nice looking shuttle bus right there waiting to whisk all of their, their uh, passengers to the hotel. Instead, I was looking for a driver. I didn't know his name. I didn't know what he was, looked like. And the problem was there were hundreds of drivers waiting outside the airport and they were all eager to give me a ride. Apparently I looked like a gullible American who you know, would, would trust anyone perhaps or think anyone would take me there. And somehow out of all these people, I needed to find the right person who was looking for me, who knew the airport or the hotel that I was supposed to go to and could get me there safely. Now, this was a lot more uncertainty than I like. I like to have a plan. I like to know the details. I like to have some semblance of control. I would rather have Google Maps and my hands on the steering wheel than trust someone that I don't know to do it. And yet, I was in a place where my phone didn't work and I had no car and driving there is such an adventure that I'm not sure I wanted to do that. I needed to trust someone else to find me and take care of me and get me to where I needed to be. And we have a similar situation in our passage today. Ruth needs to put her trust in someone else. She's going to throw herself out there. She's going to take a risk. And she's not going to be able to control what happens. But what we're going to see is that God takes care of all the details. We're coming near the end of our series through the book of Ruth, which this series has been called From Death to Life. And it's a story that starts out with this woman, Naomi, surrounded by death. And yet it ends with a bountiful harvest in more ways than one. And, and so much of the story hinges on this chapter here. This is kind of the climax where Ruth is going to put herself out there. And how will Boaz react? And what I want you to remember this morning is simply this, that we too can step out in faith because God will take care of all the details. We can take a step of faith because God will take care of all the details. And we're going to look at this very simply, just going to walk through the story and then make some applications to us. So the book of Ruth is one single story. So it's helpful to kind of recap everything that has happened so far so that you can remember. Uh, we are introduced at the beginning to a Jewish family that lives in Bethlehem. Elimelech is the dad, Naomi's the mom, and they have two sons. And there's a famine in Bethlehem. So that family decides, you know, we're out of here. The grass is always greener on the other side. And so they leave God's promised land to go to Moab. And there, Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. And one of those women is Ruth. But they soon realize, probably like some of you have, that the grass is not always greener on the other side. And as soon as they get to Moab, they start having a bunch of problems. For one, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. 
And then soon after that, one of her sons dies. And then soon after that, another one of her sons dies. And suddenly she's surrounded by death. And now Naomi is all alone in a strange land as a widow with no one to care for her, no one to look out for her, and home is far away. And so she decides to head back to Bethlehem. She learns the famine is over there, and and at least she has family there. But she tells her daughter-in-law, you all stay here. You, You won't be cared for where I'm going. I have nothing to offer you. You're going to a place that is not always friendly to foreigners, especially to Moabites like you. So one of the daughters hugs her mother-in-law and says goodbye, but the other one, Ruth, says no. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. I will, become your pe- I will go with your people. Your God will become my God. And so Naomi and Ruth make that trek back to Bethlehem. And there, when she gets there, Naomi, which that name means pleasant, she tells everyone, I've changed my name to Mara, which means bitter. She's bitter at God for how her life has turned out and how all those that she loved has died. And we need to recognize that at this point, being a widow, especially an older widow, a a grandma who's a widow, like Naomi, is not easy. You know, back then, much of a, a woman's worth was seen in her ability to provide children, to bear children. But Naomi was too old to have any more children. She had nothing to offer anyone from society's point of view. And it's not like she could have enrolled in the local community college to maybe learn how to, you know, become a nurse or something like that and at least have a job to provide for her. No, it didn't work that way. Naomi had no way to provide for herself. She was a widow, no husband. She was a widow past childbearing age. Who would want her? She would be completely dependent on the charity of others. And so they head home, and soon Ruth meets a man named Boaz. Ruth, if you remember last week, was gleaning, taking some of the leftover crops from the field, and and there she meets the owner of the field, Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's. And we see the beginnings of a relationship start to form between Boaz and Ruth. And Naomi tells Ruth, keep going back to his field. This might work and turn into something good. If, If they made a movie of it, it would be at this moment we see that spark of chemistry between Ruth and Boaz, right? Their eyes lock across the field and, you know, stare at each other slightly awkwardly. Boaz just happens to run into Ruth as he's checking on his workers and stuff like that. And Naomi is keeping track of all this and think, oh, this is good. There's something happening. Boaz is going to act on his duty to be our guardian redeemer. And a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, is, is a, a term for something that God set up for someone who had a role to care for the family. That if someone in the family was sold into slavery, the guardian's redeemer was to pay the price to redeem them from slavery. Uh, he was also to care for those, for the widows and others. And so Naomi is thinking, well, maybe Boaz will marry Ruth as a way of fulfilling his job to care for our family. But the days pass and nothing happens. It's getting close to the end of the harvest time, and there's just a few days left where Boaz and Ruth will both be out in the fields together, and then what will happen when they don't see each other? It's kind of like that last week in college, and that girl or guy that you had a crush on, right? And, and you, you're, they're about to leave for summer break, and you wonder, if I don't do something now, I'll, I'll never see them again. And that's what's happening here. In chapter three, time is running out. Boaz, or Naomi is wondering, when is Boaz going to make his move? Is he going to make a move? 
Did I read the signs all incorrectly? And so Naomi does what all women do when the man isn't moving fast enough. She takes matters into her own hands. She says, I'm going to make Boaz make a move. And so she hatches this plan. She tells Ruth to bathe herself, to get dressed, put perfume on. These are words that are specifically used elsewhere in the Bible to describe a woman who's preparing for her wedding night. And when the harvest party dies down, they were harvesting the grain, threshing the grain, but it was also a time of revelry and partying and feasting and thanksgiving. And when the party dies down and Boaz is full of food and wine and he falls asleep on the threshing floor, Naomi tells Ruth, you see where he lays down, sneak up to him, pull the blanket off his feet, and then see how he reacts. (laughs) And Ruth is listening to this plan, and you've got to think, what is going through her mind? She's probably thinking, are you crazy? I mean, think about all the ways that this could go wrong. First off, sneaking around in the middle of the night is generally not a good idea. Not today, especially not back then. Especially if you're a a, a, a woman, we have a a term for it even, a lady of the night. Women were not part of the threshing floor work. They didn't take part in the the parties. This was a man's party, but there were women who were out at night during this time, but they weren't the honorable type. They were those who were looking to make some money or get some extra grain by providing favors for these tipsy men in the party. And so this makes the plan all the more risky. I mean, others could see Ruth and think, oh, is that what she's doing now? Or Boaz, in the confusion of everything going on, could think that Ruth is in some way soliciting him. See, this is a plan that risks the only thing that Ruth has left, her reputation. And a good reputation is worth more than gold. And so if things go south, Ruth's future will be ruined. Bethlehem is a small town. Rumors about Ruth's impropriety would travel faster than wildfire. And yet what is amazing is Ruth doesn't show any hesitation. And she really meant those words that she said back to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And so Ruth gets ready and she sneaks out and she heads to that threshing floor of Boaz. And after the harvest celebrations... People would go back to go to sleep, but usually at least one or two men would go to the threshing floor at the granary to sleep by the grain as a way of protecting that freshly harvested grain to keep it from being stolen by other people. And tonight Boaz is on duty. And so Ruth sees where Boaz goes down to sleep. She waits till he's asleep. And then she, you know, sneaks over to him, uncovers his feet, and then lays down to wait. Imagine Ruth's heart beating at that moment. She probably heard it way too loudly. And she's wondering, will he ever wake up? What's his reaction going to be? What am I going to say? What is he going to say? At every little sound, her heart jumps. And then something startles Boaz, and he wakes up, he rolls over, and he can't believe his eyes. Am I dreaming? There's, there's a woman at my feet. I mean, how much wine did I drink last night? And Boaz is confused. Like, who, who are you? And the next moments will define the next decades of Ruth's life. Ruth has dressed up like she's getting ready for her wedding night. She snuck over to where Boaz is sleeping. And after he's been partying and 
enjoying it so much so that verse says, verse 7 says he's in good spirits. And what could go wrong here? But God takes care of every single detail. And Ruth answers, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Some things never seem to change. Women always are stealing our blankets at night. What does she mean by that, though? First, literally, Ruth said, spread the wings of your garment over me. If you remember last week, what did Boaz say to Ruth? May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And here is Ruth now saying, I want to take refuge under your wings. I wonder if Ruth uses that same word and that same idea to try to trigger Boaz's memory. It's, it's me. It's, it's Ruth. And what does she mean by this? Well, we get a clue in the second half of the verse. Since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. She's saying, I want you to care for me, to protect me, spread your wings around me. In many ways, this looks like an ancient marriage proposal. And this makes the plan all the more risky. I mean, even today, as progressive as we want to think we are, generally people still think the man is going to propose to the woman. Now go back some 3,000 years ago, right? And this is unheard of. Ruth is asking the man to marry her. And it's not like Ruth came from a, a royal family or the upper class, right, where, where maybe it would be more acceptable or there could be some reason for why they want to arrange her marriage. Ruth is at the bottom of the social ladder. She's a foreigner. He's an Israelite, God's chosen. She's a servant. He's the master. She has nothing and he has everything. And in verse 9, she says, I am your servant, Ruth. By the way, will you marry me? <laughs> I mean, that is incredibly bold. And yet something remarkable happens. And what we have here is another fingerprint of God. And God's fingerprints are all over this book as we see him working out the details to care for these women. And Boaz, a man who is accustomed to telling others what to do, suddenly flips the social order on its head. He says, I will do for you whatever you ask. It's like Boaz has become the servant and Ruth has become his master. And he continues, you have not run after the other men, whether young or old or, or sorry, rich or poor. She could have had her pick of men, he thinks. But suddenly there's a problem there's a closer relative than Boaz, and by law, he has that first right to care for or even marry Ruth. And as Boaz is saying that, you've just got to imagine Ruth's heart sinks as she thinks, you mean I've got to go through this whole threshing floor routine all over again? And it leads us to wonder, in a small town like Bethlehem, why didn't Naomi mention this other relative? But Boaz relieves the tension he says, I'll take care of it. I'll talk to him. And so Ruth lies back down at the feet of Boaz and tries to sleep. I remember the first night after Lisa and I first met in person. We knew each other online. Uh, we talked over the phone. But for those first couple months, we'd never seen each other. And I remember that first night I'd landed uh, in the L.A. airport. And she picked me up and we spent time together. And then she dropped me off at this hostel in Santa Monica where I was going to spend the night. And I lay there in my bed, but my mind was racing as I thought, I think this is the girl that I'm going to marry, right? And I did not sleep at all that night. And I imagine Ruth and probably Boaz didn't sleep 
at all as their mind raced about what was about to happen. But before the sun comes up, Boaz says, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Why? Well, remember what I said before. What would people assume about any woman running around at night during the harvest season? So you've got to get out of here before anyone can recognize you. And neither Boaz or Ruth knows how this is going to end. But as a way of showing his commitment, he has Ruth take off her shawl and he loads it up with grain. And notice it says he places it on her. By some estimates, he gave her some 80 pounds of grain. And she carries it back and tells Naomi everything. And I love Naomi's response. We'll know soon. This man won't rest until the the matter is settled. Naomi looked at that grain and said, oh, he's going to do something. And this slightly crazy, certainly risky plan that could have gone wrong in so many ways might just work out. But you'll have to come back next week to see how. (laughs) And so Ruth steps out in faith here. She risks the little that she has left. If it goes south, there'll be no recovering. She'll have no one. She was an immigrant at a time when immigration was very risky. She was a Moabite, and there was certainly some racial animosity towards Moabites in Israel. But in Bethlehem, she'd worked hard. She'd been out in the field. She'd been providing for her and her mother-in-law, gathering the grain. She'd built a good reputation in that town, and then she puts it all on the line one night on the threshing room floor. And she couldn't control how Boaz would react. She couldn't control all the different things that would go wrong. But she stepped out in faith, and God took care of the details. And that's what I want us to see, two things here. First, she stepped out in faith. Trusting God doesn't mean you just stay passive in everything in your life, but you take the next step. Sometimes it's a small step, but it's a a small step of faithfulness. I'm going to do the next right thing. I'm going to do the thing that I think would honor God. Maybe it's even a small thing. Maybe it's all it is, is I'm going to show up to worship God today. I'm going to pray today. And God can multiply those little acts of faithfulness. And how did she know what step to take? Well, it goes back in that promise that she made in chapter 2. Your God will be my God. So what's the next step I can take to further that commitment I made? And it's kind of scary, but I'm going to do it. And the book of Ruth really illustrates the type of life that you and I are to have as Christians. You see, in some ways, we are all like Ruth who are called to leave our home, our place of comfort, to immigrate into a new land, a new kingdom, God's kingdom. And we are to take a step on that journey to know Christ. That is why we say here at Jordan Valley Church, we are on a journey to know Christ. And part of what that means is it means every one of us in some way steps away from what it means to have this earth as our home. And we realize that this is not our eternal home, but we are on a path to that forever home that Jesus is making for us right now. To be a Christian means that your life right now is hid with Christ in God. It means that right now, if you have faith in Christ, your greatest treasures are secure in heaven They cannot be touched by changing markets or rising interest rates or bank runs or any of these things. They are secure in heaven. 
And so are you living that way? Are you living like your inheritance is held in God's hands right now? Are you living, are you stepping out in faith towards that eternal home that Jesus is making? Where is your life oriented right now? What are the things that you're pursuing today that have your heart all wrapped up that you want so badly? What difference will those things make in 75 years? Where are your treasures at right now? Where are you trying to store up your treasures? Where are you trying to collect treasures right now? I know for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about plans and things and treasures here on earth. And that's not bad. God has given us this world to enjoy, but we're to enjoy it, not at the expense of him, but we're to enjoy it to glorify him. And that means it's not as good as it gets. It means it's not the end result, but it is something that points us to what is better to come. And I know if I look at my life, and probably with many of you, probably all of us, the proportion of time I spend about thinking of the things of this earth versus the things of heaven is off balance, right? I might say that I'm on a journey to know Christ, but in so many ways, my heart is wrapped up in the fleeting pleasures of earth. Things that in the end can only turn to dust and ashes. What would it look like for you and for me to take that step, that small step of faithfulness towards living like the majority of our life will be spent in that heavenly Jerusalem where we are feasting with God and his family forever. Are you preparing for that party? Or are you just trying to have as much fun as you can right now? How would your life change if you really believed that Christ is your greatest treasure and in him are pleasures forevermore? I bet every single one of us would be a lot more generous and joyous and at peace with our life right now. And the second thing to see here, Ruth took that step and she entrusted her life into the hands of her Redeemer. On one hand, it was Boaz, but even more, it was God. One of the difficulties when I was standing outside at that Nairobi airport is I was trusting my life into someone I didn't know. I didn't know if they were trustworthy. I didn't know if they were the right person, right? But, and Ruth, laying at the feet of Boaz, puts her life in his hands. And think about how scary that was. It was the one thing she had left, her reputation. And she handed it to him. And how would he respond to her coming in the middle of the night right, and asking him to marry her? But even though it was scary, she had some comfort because she knew the character of Boaz. Chapter 2 tells us he was well-respected. He was a good man. And that is why you and I can step out in faith with God. Why you can move all your chips in with him. And it's scary to do that. You think, aren't I going to miss out of all the fun here or the things that I could have here? But you can rest in putting your entire life into the hands of the trustworthy one because he cares for you. He knows your need. He knows what you long for. He knows your heart. He knows everything about you. And you can see how trustworthy is he is by seeing what he has done for us in Jesus. And this story takes place in Bethlehem. And you probably 
Maybe you don't know this story as well, but you do know the story of another immigrant who came to Bethlehem with nothing to his name and was born in a manger some 1,000 years after this story. Jesus left his heavenly home with all of its comforts, all of its privileges, and he went into a world that would not understand who he was, would not understand why he came, nor what he came to do. And Jesus gave up a life of privilege and honor and comfort. He left his throne to be born in a manger. He took off his crown to be crowned with thorns. And he died suffering under the curse of his father. Why? For you and for me. To show how much he loved you. To show how much he would give up to have you. To show how strong his hold on you would be. That he would not let you go even if it meant his death. And he did that because he loves you so much. He would suffer, so, if he would suffer so much, endure so much, so that he could redeem you, how can you not trust him to take care of the details of your life, even if you don't know what they are? How can you not trust that he actually has your best interests in mind, even when you don't know how it's going to happen? Stepping out in faith to follow him with all of your heart is scary, but it's actually the safest thing that you can do because he's the trustworthy one. He's the all-powerful one, and he has shown how much he will give in order to have you. I love the ending of Psalm 16. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. And that's the one that we can entrust our life to. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to trust you more than we do now because... Frankly, I, all of us, don't trust you near enough. Father, we want to know all the details. We want to control these things. We feel despair because we don't think things are going to work out. We worry so much about the unknowns. And we doubt that you care for us. But Father, I pray that you would drive deep into every one of our hearts the depths of your love so that even though we don't know how things might turn out in our life, we would know that you will not let us go and that we would be okay with that, knowing that you will provide. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.